Welcome to the Gaming Street Podcast, your guide to the business of video games. I'm Stephen Wong. And I'm Olivia Da Silva. This week, we sit down with FIG co-founder Justin Bailey to discuss the state of crowdfunding. Later, we'll talk about big changes coming to Call of Duty's revenue model. But first, our top story. After a decade of being a single-game company, League of Legends creator Riot Games announced a flood of upcoming titles during its 10th anniversary livestream. Seven games were announced in total alongside a League of Legends TV show and a feature-length documentary. Although all the upcoming games take place in an extended League of Legends universe, they span multiple genres and platforms that include a cartoonish first-person shooter, a Diablo-like action role-playing game, and a collectible card game similar to Hearthstone. This rapid expansion and other signs indicate that Riot is ready to take on Blizzard in a big way. So, Olivia, what do you think about Riot becoming the next Blizzard? I mean, I feel like they've kind of got their work cut out for them with this. You know, they they can see all these different targets in terms of the TV show and documentary. And they're just trying to cover, I think, so many different bases with regards to kind of the same content, if that makes sense. I want to see how they do. I want to see if they can manage to kind of reach that same level, if that makes any sense. Definitely, Riot has a lot going for it. It's backed by Tencent. It's owned by Tencent, one of the biggest gaming companies in the world. And they have like 2,500 employees in total ready to go everywhere all at once in all directions. There were seven games announced during the live stream, but the most prominent were probably Legends of Runeterra, which is a Hearthstone-like League of Legends-themed trading card game that supposedly won't use any kind of randomized pack purchases for unlocking new cards. That's really right up in Hearthstone's face right now. There's a first-person shooter codenamed Project A, which Riot is being kind of coy about. They're saying like, oh, we're emphasizing the net code to make sure there's no lag in the gameplay. And when you look at the actual gameplay, the first thing that comes to mind is Overwatch or Team Fortress 2 because it's got that that cartoony, cel-shaded look to it. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, it's like, oh my God, this is just like a slap right in the face <laughs> for for Blizzard. And on top of that... There's a Project F, a League of Legends-themed action RPG that they didn't really show that much of. They just said it's it's in super early development, but this is really just like a kick in the face of the House of Diablo. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, you know what? I will say I think it's really interesting because it's like, you know, League of Legends is one of the most popular esports on the market right now. I'm sorry. It goes without saying, and it has been for a few years now, and... I think, you know, Riot has kind of reached this point of like, okay, we know League is good. We know as it stands right now for what it is, it's good. Why don't we try like 52 different varieties, Heinz style, and just see how it goes and see what people are drawn to. And, you know, if, if say the fighting game or like an action RPG or even the Hearthstone version of League of Legends ends up being a huge success, then that's a new ball that they can roll with and a new way that they can expand. But this is, it's, it's really interesting to just see them trying on a bunch of different hats at the same time and seeing which ones people and, you know, players and consumers alike are the most drawn to. I don't think that Riot necessarily has the same expectations and deadlines that Blizzard has when when talking about the, its relationship with Tencent because they Riot can afford to play the long game. They're already backed by this massively successful game. 
that is going to drive them moving forward for the foreseeable future. And so they can take just take their time and chill and find out what works and what doesn't before they hit final release on any of these games, whether it's on PC, console, or mobile. It's true. And I mean, the thing is as well is that, you know, with any major release, any major title, uh, regardless of whether it's online, whether it's a solo play type of game, you know, like just as an example, look at like the Persona series. Um, you know, each standalone game being Persona 3, 4, 5, they're all incredibly successful by themselves, but they all, of course, come with these spin-off titles that are, you know, in the case of, say, Persona 5 right now, there's a dancing game, there's like a, a scramble game where it's, you know, it's a more of like an assault, um, more of just fighting your way through the game as opposed to the a deep story that the core game comes with. And so... It doesn't surprise me too much that League would also fall into that of like, okay, we've got our core game that's doing as well as it is and has been for quite some time. Now that there's other competitors coming into the space like Fortnite that are shaking things up, how can we ourselves diversify and how can we kind of keep interest in this brand and in this game alive? Introducing new forms of content by, you know, the same game just in a ton of different ways seems to be one avenue that they're open to trying out. And, you know, as you were kind of saying, it's yet to be seen as to whether all of these games will actually really come to fruition or if they're more just talking points for now. And I'm very, very curious as to how these all play out. It's clear that that Riot needs to diversify at this point. It did make $1.4 billion last year, which is amazing for any game in the world. Mm -hmm. But it is a, still a huge drop from the $2.1 billion it made in 2017. And that's mostly attributed to the rise of Fortnite. So Riot is not going to be in a very good position if another Fortnite game rises up and further erodes its revenues. So it needs to diversify in a big way very quickly to try to maintain high revenues. The big question is, will it work? Will going in so many directions at the same time work out for Riot? I think it's interesting as well that, you know, they're, they're concerned about the rise of Fortnite and the way that it's kind of chewing away at League of Legends revenue. Also to that end, the rumors around Overwatch too. I feel like League is looking ahead at the things that may or may not be coming with things that, you know, we don't know necessary, like specific dates on these titles yet, or in the case of Overwatch 2, if it's even happening but at the same time, it seems like Riot is looking ahead and kind of going, okay, this is what our future competition may or may not look like. We need to get prepared. Like we need to keep those dollars coming in because otherwise we may get forgotten about. So the big question from there is, does the League of Legends brand have that appeal? Does it have that draw that may potentially steal players away from games like Hearthstone or Overwatch? I mean, after everything that's happened with Hearthstone in the last few weeks, I feel like people might be open to uh, switching teams on that one with uh, jumping from Activision to Riot. But I think a big component of that as well is the overall fan base, right? So the, one of the things with League is that so many people play it. And, you know, the first time I was introduced to League was about five, six years ago, and it was a big deal then, and it still is fairly hot in terms of esports and online games. And... I think as long as there's a significant community of people that are giving this game a try, then I think more people are willing to jump on the bandwagon. As long as League can maintain that sense of community and people are still coming in, it'll it, it kind of fulfills itself, if that makes any sense. Yeah. I mean, the, the main benefit 
of a game like League of Legends is that they're constantly updating it. That will keep League of Legends going. The question is whether you jump to the mobile version, Wild Rift, of League of Legends and play there, or if that's going to be a completely separate audience. I really don't think that they're going to combine seasoned PC players with uh, mobile players, but who knows? It'd be wild to watch. As far as their other games, it's a short jump in some cases. Like There's uh, going to be like an esports manager where you get to manage over an esports team, and it's going to be connected to the League of Legends Pro League stats so that you can uh, kind of raise your baby up and, <laughs> and have your own fantasy league. And that that's not much of a jump. And even the, the team fight tactics mode, which is an auto battler that's on PC and Max right now and is going to be brought to mobile next year, even that's not much of a jump from the main League of Legends game. What I'm eager to find out is if League of Legends fans who are totally dedicated to learning the the ins and outs of a MOBA game, will they necessarily jump over to a shooter or a fighting game, any of these cross-genre games that Riot is looking to release in the next year or two? I, I think with something like that, you're going to have two separate kinds of audiences that are gravitating towards these. You're going to have the ones who are the diehard League fans that really just want to check out the new version of their game to see if they like it. So, you know, if you like League, but you also kind of like, uh, I don't know, fighting games, for example, like, you know, the more of the Mortal Kombat style fighting games, and that's what they're releasing, then, you know, maybe they'd be willing to try it and they'll check it out. And if they hate it, then they'll just go back to what they like anyway. And, you know, they're still a fan. It's just kind of like, okay, nope, like, I, I didn't want that. Or alternatively, you're going to have the fans who do not like League of Legends current setup and want to try a different version of it. So if they find themselves gravitating towards that, you know, the tactical shooters or even like a mobile version of the game, you know, if that's their preferred playing style, then they may give it a chance on the fact that, you know, they've heard a lot about it. They've tried the base core game. It's not really their style, but maybe, maybe they'll give this new one a try and see if it's more up their alley than the core game. And Depending on how those do, I think that's going to be where the majority of its audience comes in. As I often say, we will have to just wait and see. Crowdfunding on platforms like Kickstarter involves a 30-day campaign where developers ask the public to help fund their games in exchange for backer rewards. It's a make-or-break moment where meeting or exceeding the monetary goal means a new game with a strong following and a loyal fan base will be made. But while the process has had a number of massive success stories, it is not without some equally prominent failures and controversies. Founded in 2015, FIG takes a slightly different approach to crowdfunding. Instead of backing projects for rewards like copies of the game, investors receive shares in future revenues. The company also matches funding helps with the game's marketing, and sometimes helps facilitate the sales of successful games to leading publishers. FIG still uses the traditional 30-day campaign method popularized by Kickstarter, but it expanded on the format by launching the Open Access System in May, which initiates additional rounds of funding when the project reaches specified milestones. Additionally, it is testing a portfolio shares program, where accredited investors can put money into several projects at once. FIG selects the games that will be included and issues funding according to the open access system of milestones. FIG CEO Justin Bailey explains what's wrong with the traditional crowdfunding model. Yeah, I mean, the problem is it's not growing. And it, it was between around 2012 and 2015. 
Um, and I wanted to look at and see, you know, why is that? And um, actually comparing what's happening with board games, which, you know, is kind of a thriving um, ecosystem right now and seeing like what what's different there than in video games uh, brings a lot of light to um, what the problems are. When you think about like board games, right? Uh, in general, you're seeing like a, a prototype of pretty close to what the final product is going to be, if not exactly what it's going to be. And in general, then they said they set their campaign goal at what it's going to be, it's going to cost them to fulfill it. And so it's it's very much known what that is and then what the timing of that's going to be. Um, and that timing is, is is about six to nine months. It's it's fairly consistent. And so, um, and then once they, you know, if they're able to get bulk discounts on fulfillment, um, they can do more things, add more features and more figures, more cards, expansions and stuff. And, and that's that's a very known quantity. And so the stretch goals, um, are very predictable. And so when you look at something like that, you have, and a consumer is going through this process, you see, they see the final quality of what they're going to get. They know the timing of it and there's transparency on the budget. And so, um, and it's, and it's fairly, it's that whole process is a fairly tight turnaround. So I pledge six, nine months later, I get my thing, which is, is exactly what I expected. Generally with more things, if it overfunded, I get you know, bonus items. So now like compare that to video games. And what you generally have is it's a much longer development cycle first off, but you know, you're normally seeing like concept or, you know, pre-alpha. That's what you're seeing as far as representation of the game. And it's going to change hugely for when it actually gets delivered. As it goes along, as development goes along, you generally get feedback from, from gamers. And, you know, development can take different twists and turns that were unexpected up front. And so that's hard to put that into the budget as far as what it's going to cost or how long it's going to take. So what gets delivered, you know, oftentimes for video games, they get delivered late and they've changed quite substantially from when it started. And so you don't have this, this, um, this tight-knit turnaround. You don't get exactly what was being shown at the beginning. Um, and there isn't as much transparency on what the budget is because it's unknown um, when you start. And so if you just if you look at all aspects of comparing like what happens with the board games and what happens in actuality with video games, the format of doing this 30-day, uh, only doing a 30-day fundraise, I think sets developers up to fail uh, because they're not set up to, to succeed as far as what gamers' expectations are. How does open access fix the problem? And does ongoing funding take some of the pressure off the initial 30-day campaign? I'm not proposing getting rid of the first 30 days. Uh, I'm just I'm proposing that it not be the only component of it. Um, I think and being transparent that it's not the only component. So I think where a lot of developers get in trouble is, you know, with they they try to conform to this Kickstarter format of hey we're gonna pretend like we know what the exact what the end budget's gonna be and that this fundraise is gonna be all we're gonna need to get there. Um, and I think I think people were really scared at first, and you know, developers were scared that um, if they said they had a publisher or they had investors lined up, or that they were just doing this Kickstarter, that you know, this 30-day uh, piece to show that there's demand for the game they want to make, and then use that to then get the support of investors and publishers, that people wouldn't participate. So because the the story that started out with 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 Kickstarter was 
wow, no publisher will take my game. So I need the community to rise up and, and fund this. And, you know, the, the connotation is fund it fully. And that, that's kind of, that's, that's become a myth. A lot of the games we work with, the majority have publishers. Many of the ones with Kickstarter I know have come to pitch me and like they themselves have publishers and investors behind the scenes. And I think it's a misnomer and, and that you need to hide any of that. Um, you can be transparent with it. And what we found is that when gamers get involved in these crowdfunding events, what they really want is they just want this game to exist, but they also want transparency about, what, about what's actually going on. Do you think it's possible to recapture that same excitement and enthusiasm the public had during the early days of video game crowdfunding? It can, but it does start with that transparency piece. So it's like building, um, building kind of a uh, regaining people's trust, which is harder. Like once you lose it, it's hard to get it back, right? So by all sense of purposes, what we found is, you know, we have about a third of people participating in crowdfunding that used to. There's about like two thirds you know, something happened during the way. Uh, like, I'd say, you know, half of that two thirds are just going to wait until games are done now. Like, because they backed an initial Kickstarter game and instead it's going to be two years, it turns out to be five years later. Um, and they're just kind of like, hey, guess what? Instead of, you know, being on this journey, I'll just wait until it comes out and I'll buy it then. Or I'll even wait until six months later and it gets discounted. So, and pick it up in Humble Bundle or something. Another part of it, I think, are people that actually felt burned for the process. And so they came in and, you know, saw, hey, I backed this and it, it didn't become anything like what I was expecting it to be. What we're really for is we're for the transparency, you know, transparency of, around what's being developed and how long it's going to take. Um, and, you know, Kickstarter, the Kickstarter format of just doing 30 days, it relies heavily on press. And Back from 2012 to 2015, like a crowdfunding campaign used to be considered press, and it actually isn't anymore. Back in that day, you would have a game would have a have initial like campaign goal, and it would get covered that they were crowdfunding. It would get covered when they hit that goal, and then also when they had multiples of that goal. And so, you know, game designers, they're not dumb. They they looked at that and they saw all the press coverage and all the beats that happened. And then they would design their campaign goals many times um, to be lower than what they actually needed and something that could actually, they could get, they thought they could get multiples of. Um, the problem being, of course, is, you know, that didn't always work out. And sometimes they would just get over the goal. And then all of a sudden now they're cash strapped, having set expectations much higher and, uh, you know, developing a game on a portion of that budget. Is there a risk that open access may make potential backers more hesitant to become early adopters? I mean, perhaps they'd rather wait until a milestone or two are reached before they put money into a project. Yeah, and we want those people to do that. Like, that's the third we were talking about before. That's like, hey, maybe we'll just wait until this gets done. And, you know, buying back, like winning back their trust. So they're like, hey, I'm actually, I'd like to get involved early. There's something I get my hands on now. Like, that's interesting. And if people really don't want to buy it till the game's done, we think that's fine. That's actually part of our marketing approach. What inspired the inclusion of the portfolio share program where investors can put money into multiple games at once? And how well is it working so far? Yeah, so what it is, it's a, it's a pooled vehicle. Um, like when our, our number one request um, from accredited investors was, hey, don't make us come and invest in each single game. Like if you just if you would just you know take our money up front and you guys decide which game gets it, then 
we could put a lot more money to work. So we listened to them. That was one part that we listened to. The second thing we listened to is it's tied to what I just mentioned, which was, you know, you have like 150 games that release on Steam and like 90% of those don't even get any reviews. Well, we, we have basically an investment perspective that says, hey, if you can get, you know, a few hundred backers when your game is an early concept or demo stage, you know, you've already proven that you can perform better than a lot of games do on Steam. The majority of games do on Steam um, at that point. So, you know, then, hey, that triggers that we can consider investing. Now, the second component of that is FIG traditionally was allowing investors to decide kind of what their allocation would be and how much money they would invest. And the premise was that based on how much people would invest, that would actually correlate to the actual financial uh, potential of these games when they came out. We actually did, we found no correlation to that. However, you know, with these advertising campaigns that we do and the fact that there's comments on FIG and we have a huge amount of data coming into us that, that shows engagement on these campaigns. And so, you know, the idea was we'd take this vehicle, we would distribute that money um, to a game if it, it meets a certain criteria and then decide how much investment got allocated to it based on like what kind of traction it was getting based on these engagement metrics and then time those infusions of cash to come in when they achieve certain milestones. The idea with that is games that are showing more and more momentum, more and more funds are, are freeing up for them. And then, of course, by achieving these milestones, they've, they've reduced the technical risk as well. And so we went back and, you know, the majority of our, of our games are successful and they've generated positive returns for investors. And we just looked at it and we're like, hey, let's go back and kind of reclass this and see if we had applied this technique in the past, how would it affect the returns? Um, and it, it, it nearly tripled the returns. We used to only do investments. And like we have a game right now that's um, called Chorus. And it's not even doing investment. It's just doing the pledges. So, so that's, that's something that's changed. But um, now with developers, we say, hey, if you fund on FIG and you achieve like these certain metrics, then it, you know, investment is open to you. And, um, and we, can, we can put these, these, this, this money to work. So, so it's not going to be every game um, on FIG. But um, it's, kinda, it's, it's both directions. It's the developer would like to pursue investment funds, and they've actually met our criteria um, that we've, we've promised um, our investors that we're, we're only going to invest funds once that, once that occurs. So while you continue to gather data from the Portfolio Shares program, what should investors be aware of in terms of risk when they're thinking about putting money behind a game on FIG? First and foremost, with open access, we specify when the developer is promising to reach a full commercial release. And when all they're promising is the milestones that they achieve and delivering that. We want to be very transparent with the fact that, hey, some of these games, that may be as far as they go, is just the next few milestones. Like if they're not able to attract a publisher or get unlocked the investment dollars they need, that game, uh, it might be stuck in that state. It might be stuck in that state for a long, long time. It actually may stuck in that state forever, right? Development may stop in some cases. Um, we haven't seen that that much in, in the past, but it does happen. You know, this whole process for me is a premise of community publishing. Is this idea that, you know, I used to work for publishers and um, I used to do the green light behind closed doors and we'd fund it completely off our, our balance sheet. And then, you know, we would review all the development milestones and then, like, right before the game launched, we'd start advertising, right? 
And I just I don't really think that's right for most games, um, especially indie games. Like if you're going to get out there and get discovered, you have to uh, you have to embrace open development, and that's that's one of the reasons we call it open access is because it's fundamentally tied to this concept of being comfortable with open development. And the reason for that is because we put the community, the community of gamers, at the center of this publishing process. And so, in a de facto way, they are you know choosing which games get greenlit. They're actually helping fund them. They're reviewing the milestones, as you can see in our new structure, um, and helping getting the word out. So that's that's really what we're looking at now. Is um, is this just this idea about the whole publishing process being being around this community that supports? A special thanks to Justin Bailey of Fig for taking the time to sit down with us. We'll be right back with more Gaming Street podcast. With Call of Duty Modern Warfare releasing on October 25th, Activision has taken a page out of Fortnite's book with the introduction of a Battle Pass system. Though the system will be implemented later this year and not with the initial game release, the Battle Pass will be replacing loot boxes as a way for players to earn and buy additional content. So it's worth noting that... Gaming is not gambling, okay? They are not one and the same. And we have had, there have been previous issues where the loot box system, as was previous with other Call of Duty titles, was kind of randomized. It was vague. You know, you couldn't really figure out what you were getting or, for that matter, what you were spending money on in hopes of achieving. And now it seems that Activision is trying to smooth that out and create more of a transparent purchase system, I guess, for lack of a better word, um, with players so that they know what kind of content they're getting, what they're achieving and what they're paying for. So Stephen, what, what are your thoughts on um, Activision's attempts to smooth things out communication wise with their players? I think this was pretty much inevitable that they had to move to some non loot box sort of revenue system, because even though Activision Blizzard made four billion dollars for microtransactions including for mobile games last year the world has been changing because of these in-game loot boxes a lot more countries are lumping in loot boxes with gambling which requires age gating and regulation and all these sorts of things that activision blizzard and other companies like electronic arts surely do not want to deal with this sort of thing is inevitable The question is whether it'll work because this whole DLC loot box system that Call of Duty games has been using has been refined for across multiple games and multiple years and players have pretty much gotten used to it. Do you think that Call of Duty players are ready to switch over to a battle pass? Well, the thing that I find interesting is the fact that Activision stated that they will not be releasing this Battle Pass system with the initial game drop, you know, and and their way of spinning it was just so that, you know, players can experience the game for all that it is before, you know, introducing all this extra content, which makes sense. But also part of me personally, and this is just my opinion, feels like they kind of want to gauge the reaction of Modern Warfare from players and see how people feel about the idea of this battle pass system. You know, this was only announced a few days ago. So this is, I think, a little bit of a touch and go period for them. And also, as you said, you know, the the whole gambling concept of these loot box previously has been really coming under fire from a lot of countries for a lot of titles. You know, when you look at certain games, uh, such as Star Wars Battlefront 2, there was a lot of controversy around that title for being, (laughs) yeah, for being pay to win because... 
you know, you'd pay for, I believe they were loot boxes and just pray that it would be the thing that you needed. Star Wars Battlefront 2 was like loot box taken to its extreme and done in the worst possible way ever. Not only were like cosmetic items included in loot boxes, certain weapons were locked behind loot boxes. You couldn't get them through gameplay. There were certain characters that were locked behind loot boxes, like big boss characters that you could you could play, like Luke Skywalker or Darth Vader. You had to unlock them through loot boxes. You couldn't just play the game and, and gather up points to unlock Darth Vader. That was the, really the breaking point for a lot of players. That's when... That's when gamers started writing to their governments saying like, hey, this stuff needs to be regulated. Yeah. And and that's the thing, you know, at least with what Activision is doing with this, uh, you know, new battle pass system is that base weapons and attachments and, you know, what they call functional content is unlockable just by playing the game. So they're not locking away key weapons or anything that's really going to elevate your ability or skill as a player behind a paywall. And for that, thank God, honestly, you know, so the new system is going to let players earn Call of Duty points just by playing the game. And so these are points that can go towards, uh, you know, acquiring things like rare supply drops and extra loadout slots in multiplayer and just Anything that's a little bit extra, a little bit fun can be earned by simply playing the game. That I think is a key component in all of this, because if you want to pay a little bit of extra money and you get that premium content with the battle pass, then cool. You you get a new skin for your gun. You get a new outfit to run around in, even though it's a first person shooter and you're not really going to see yourself anyway. You know, as long as it's more of like a for fun type of thing versus a this makes me a better player type of thing then I think that's a very key difference that Activision has honed in on. And a lot of what they were saying as well is that they want to make this game much more inclusive in terms of the multiplayer, in terms of allowing all players, regardless of how much money they spend, to be equally involved. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure it plays well into the Call of Duty League esport. And I think that there there won't be as much fragmentation as there was in previous games where some people would have maps and some people didn't have maps so they couldn't play together and leveling the playing field so that everyone can enjoy the game at least for a little while uh, until they get shot in the head by some sniper camping out in the middle of nowhere <laughs> it's not a matter of whether this format is profitable it clearly is i mean fortnite is the prime example of that and that's a free to play game the top revenue generating game last year was PUBG, Player Unknown's Battlegrounds, which is a premium game, which and that I think that also has a battle pass system. So it's not a question of whether it brings in the money. It definitely does, whether you're free to play or premium. It's a question of whether Call of Duty fans will necessarily take to it. I mean if if you're used to picking up the best weapons and, and paying like two dollars for whatever for new maps and and paying $15 for a season pass are you ready to throw your lot in with this battle pass system to know what you're going to get everything up front and decide like "Eh, you know what I don't really need the xp boost I'm that good so that's okay I don't need to pick this up (laughs) you were saying before something about loot boxes being especially uh I guess, criticized by governments and and other countries too, right? Yeah. A lot of them introduced legislation to protect miners from 
from gambling, basically. They are associating loot boxes with gambling. So there are all these gambling regulations and laws that had to be put into place to protect minors. In the U.S., it happened largely at a state level. But in other countries like the U.K. that recently stated that loot box was a form of gambling, that they're introducing more countrywide legislation. Like Brussels is another example of that, too. When it reaches that level where not only, as you said, players are writing to their governments and the governments are getting involved, kind of saying, no, like we are introducing gambling tactics and habits to children and children who frankly don't really have the money to be spending like nine times out of 10, they're using their parents' credit card anyway. So it's like, if you're getting them addicted to the sensation of gambling and hoping that they get whatever item, whatever character or whatever unlockable thing is behind that paywall, then you're introducing those gambling habits at an early age, which is just, I don't think something anybody wants, whether it's the gaming community or otherwise. And it's its a little bit of a shame that, you know, these, these giant publishers or companies can't really make that connection for themselves and that there needs to be government intervention before loot boxes start to be slowly phased out. Some games are sticking to their guns, like FIFA is sticking to the loot box format because FIFA brings in a lot of revenue for EA. I'm surprised that Activision did make the argument that Call of Duty is a mature rated game and it's meant for grown-ups anyway. So if your kids are playing Call of Duty, that's on you. But <laughs> FIFA, on the other hand, is meant for everyone. It's a, it's a soccer game. It's a very popular sport. EA is apprehensive about letting it go, but I think that EA will eventually have to update the game and their, their entire revenue stream to, to keep up with the times. Yeah, and that's the thing. If if all the major titles and all the major publishers are shifting away from this loot box thing as criticism grows towards that system, then, you know, they may be pushed into a corner with it. But then again, we're seeing a trend here with EA, so it's it's yet to be seen what's going to happen with them. But I think another interesting thing that Activision has also kind of highlighted with the announcement regarding this Battle Pass system is that they're removing the Season Pass and a la carte DLC multiplayer map packs because quote unquote, they want to ensure everyone can play together. So I think that they're really trying to make the game much more inclusive and try to avoid those paywall barriers. They also mentioned that Call of Duty Modern Warfare is going to have a few extra new things that Call of Duty's never had, including crossplay across all platforms, free post-launch multiplayer maps and modes for all players, which will be released simultaneously across all platforms. So they're, they're really trying to, I think, connect the community. And I think this is one of the best moves that they've made in a while in terms of just really trying to make their game as accessible to all their fans and all their players as possible, because Modern Warfare has been fairly anticipated. And after the chaos that Infinite Warfare was with, you know, all the YouTube preview downvotes and whatnot... I think they kind of took a step back and went, okay, how can we really take care of our Call of Duty fans? Because they've been with us for such a long time now. I think it's time that we give something back to them. And this this is a fabulous way of doing it. Mm -hmm. I think it'll be interesting to see how everyone meshes together across multiple games. Uh, it's exciting to see cross-platform becoming a big thing. Absolutely. That's it for this week's edition of the Gaming Street Podcast. Our show is a production of Gaming Street and Enthusiast Gaming. It was written by Stephen Wong and myself, Olivia Da Silva, and edited by Conrad Zimmerman. For more news and analysis of the games industry, visit GamingStreet.com. Subscribe, rate, and review the show at Apple Podcasts. For Gaming Street, I'm Stephen Wong. We'll talk to you next time.